Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 19th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Wednesday, the 21st of November 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we talk with Professor Matthew Forstadter about primitive accumulation, what Marx thought of fiat currency, and the role of the US government debt. If you would like to donate to the Keep Tom Drunk Throughout the Christmas Fund, please click on the donate button on the podcast website. I'd like to take this time to say hello to all those people on the From Alpha to Omega Facebook group. Hello. So, to the interview. Matthew Forstadter is Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is a fan of Marx, amongst others, and the author of numerous books, including the economics entry in the series Little Book of Big Ideas. We join the conversation as the professor is discussing Marx and money. So Marx famously had a commodity money approach in capital, and there's been a history of debates about exactly what is Marx's view of money because, you know, later on in volume three, he's talking all about credit money and, you know, bills of exchange and paper. And so there are a variety of views, even these new kind of interpretations of volume one, where people argue that well, no, it's it, it's not really a commodity money in volume one or this and that, because, of course, you know, one of the issues is the continuing relevance of Marx's political economy, not just whether he understood the capitalism of his time, but whether we can use his insights to understand contemporary political economy. And that's really the question for many of us. That that's the importance of Marx for of us. And there are some historians of economic thought who are interested in questions from the past. And I read that stuff and I admire it. That's not my approach to the history of economics. My approach is that, you know, what can we learn from the great thinkers of the past that we can apply to today? So since capitalism, as Marx recognized is dynamic it's it's not static and staying still even in capital when marx has almost a, a stages theory of capitalism where he talks about machinofacture and manufacture the different stages where the process is changing and so on or his distinction between a simple commodity economy and capitalist economy and so on so the issue of the commodity money in 
volume one is, I feel, strongly tied to the labor theory of value since the value of gold as a commodity would also be determined by the amount of labor time required in its production, then the relative value of gold and other commodities is simply determined just like the relative value of any other commodities by the you know, relative amounts of the labor time in their required for their production. The, the important point, I feel, is that Marx recognized several different forms of money. I, I, I haven't even answered your question yet, which is how did he determine the value of paper money? And I think the important point for me is that reading variety of Marx's contributions, the Grundriss, uh, all three volumes of Capital, not just uh, volume one, and many other writings, some of which were previously unavailable and which have forced us to reconsider Marx's views on a variety of topics, including money. You see, the thing is that uh, modern money theorists or Marxists or whoever, I, I don't know except for, you know, maybe mainstream theory, but heterodox theory never says this is how money operates. This is how value is determined. No, it is under such and such an institutional setting, money can operate in this way. But under these alternative institutional arrangements, money may operate in this way. Or there may be a variety of different forms of money that are coexisting because there often exist alternative institutional arrangements even within the larger system. It's always what is the way in which a money system works in a specific institutional context. If we look at a fiat currency of today, like the British pound or the US dollar, would it be fair to say that the value that it, it has is based upon the amount of labor that it's able to procure? This is almost like Adam Smith's distinction between a labor embodied and labor commanded. Smith sometimes talked about the value of a commodity being determined by the amount of uh, labor time embodied in its production. For Smith, that was in a what he called an early and rude state of society that precedes capital accumulation or the privatization of land. But then he also talked about commodities value being determined by the amount of labor that the commodity could exchange for or that he, he called, said it could, that it could command, which would be the same thing as what you just said, the amount that it could procure. Now, the interesting thing is that um, it depends on the institutional setting, but there are institutional settings in which the value of a fiat currency is determined by the wage that is paid to the average semi-skilled worker. The important thing today, and I believe that Marx also 
recognize this is the role that the state plays. It's not how goods exchange for one another in some kind of idealized market system independently of the state. The state is part of the economic system. The tendency, and this is not just uh, the mainstream, unfortunately, it's also true of many heterodox approaches to have this idea of some kind of independent economic system that operates with its own laws and the state is viewed as quote-unquote exogenous or outside of this so-called disembedded economy. I think that view is extremely problematic. The problem is, is that when you bring the state in, your solutions don't become all, you know, neat and people who like neat solutions want to leave the state out and later say, okay, now this is how the state modifies the results that we obtain in our abstract market system or whatever it is. Capitalism, for me, and I think that there's a lot of evidence that Marx viewed it in the same way, that Marx recognized the role of the state as part of the economic system. In early capitalism, think about some of the most important institutions, such as the Royal East India Company. These were state monopoly corporations with their own military arm, with their own bureaucracy. There was no distinction between the state and the economic actors. They were one and the same. That's why it always amuses me when you read the rhetoric about the uh, free market, laissez-faire, and all of this. No, the state was part of the economic system from the very beginning. In fact, this is part of the argument about the role of taxes in creating wage laborers, which is a prerequisite for a capitalist economy. The state created wage laborers by imposing a tax and requiring that the tax be paid in the state's monopoly currency. Even peasants who had their own land or livestock and so could feed themselves still had to do whatever the state said you had to do to obtain its monopoly currency because it was the money monopolist. And so if the state said you have to work on our plantations or you have to work in our mines or you have to work in our factories or you have to grow cash crops instead of the subsistence food, then that's what you had to do. Now, of course, in much of Europe and Britain and so on, the enclosure movements were extremely important. The former serfs were thrown off the land, and so they had no resources to produce their own means of subsistence, and so they had to work in factories. And that's the kind of classic view 
of what Marx called primitive accumulation, which is, you know, the term that he used for the prerequisites and preconditions for a capitalist economy. So how did primitive accumulation work in the colonial era? Marx says, right even in volume one, when he's describing the enclosure movements that was basically the privatization of the commons and the expropriation of land by the state. In, in feudalism, the serfs were hereditarily tied to the land and they produced some of their own subsistence and then they had to give some of what they produced to the Lord as tributes. This is surplus that the Lord is extracting from the serfs. The later period, there's, you know, what's known as the crisis of feudalism, the various wars and diseases and the stagnation of technology and all different factors. And the lords were increasingly trying to extract more and more tribute from the, the serfs. There were a variety of serf rebellions and uprisings. And so the state began supporting in Europe expeditions, the sending explorers out on ships to try to find more resources. And, you know, we know the rest of the story. Marx said that capitalism has, he called somewhat tongue-in-cheek, double freedom requirement. And this is that the mass of the population needs to be free from the means of production and free to sell their labor power in the market. If the idea, and this is the kind of classic idea that many Marxists hold of primitive accumulation, and that is that if the population has means of production to produce their own means of subsistence, their own food, then why should they go and work for the capitalist in the factory? The enclosure movement, I mean, this was hundreds of years in the making, but there was a lot of commons. So even if you didn't have your own piece of land, you could go and hunt or you could go and, well, now that was going to be considered to be poaching, you know, no longer permitted. The commons was completely privatized and you had this former surf population left without a way to produce their own food requirements. And at the same time, laws were changing, which permitted wage labor, because actually wage labor was sometimes against the law way back. 
So you had the laws allowing wage labor, but on the other side, you had this compulsion for people, the average person, to sell their labor power, their labor services for a wage because they had to do that to survive. So that's the classic case. Now, let's move now to the British, the French in Africa. Africa is so much land and it was not viewed by the colonial powers as not possible to throw the population off the land. And other times it was not viewed as desirable to throw the population off the land. Now, there was a lot of expropriation of land also under colonialism, but the colonial governments, the colonial powers found other methods of creating wage laborers, or in some cases, what they really wanted was for the indigenous African population to grow coffee or tea or cocoa or palm oil or whatever. These would be the raw materials for the emerging British industry. And forced labor, corvée labor, that was one method that was used. But another method that we find under a variety of colonial powers, different European powers, and not only in Africa, but in India, everywhere, including even in Europe and Russia, which Marx recognized, this method was taxation and the requirement that taxes be paid in the colonial currency. So the colonial government would impose a direct tax, such as a head tax or a hut tax, and the requirement that the tax be paid in the colonial currency. Now, many African societies had some forms of money prior to the age of European colonialism, imperialism, and some weren't using money, but they didn't have the colonial money because this was the monopoly of the colonial government. So how were the populations going to get the colonial currency to pay their taxes? And of course, if they didn't pay their taxes, harsh punishments were instituted. So the colonial power, of course, which was the only institution that had the currency, could state whatever it was that the population had to do to obtain it. Often this was, you have to work as wage laborers building these roads or on these plantations or in the mines or whatever they wanted the population to do. And then also it was, well, we'll pay colonial currency for cocoa, but only cocoa. So then the population has to grow cocoa instead of its own subsistence food. This became not the, but a secret of colonial capitalist primitive accumulation. And this is a play on Marx talks about, you know, the quote unquote secret of primitive accumulation. And the historical evidence is so overwhelming that it's beyond dispute. 
And Marx himself recognized this form, as I have discovered in my research. One of the most important was writings of a Russian writer who wrote the kind of Russian version of Engels' The Making of the English Working Class. This uh, Florovsky, he talked about that taxation of the peasants requires them to work, and the more they're taxed, the harder they have to work. Is this message still the same under our current developed systems? I would say yes. And, you know, in fact, there has been a strong movement in the Marxist literature toward this idea that primitive accumulation is often thought of as something that happened long, long ago and was just this historical period prior to the rise and development of capitalism, that there was a necessary accumulation of wealth that needed to take place and also the creation of wage labor needed to take place, and that once that was created, primitive accumulation was done. The word primitive kind of lends itself towards that interpretation. But many Marxists now have taken the view primitive accumulation is ongoing. It continually creates and recreates the conditions for capitalism's existence and ongoing requirements. So, yes, I would say that even though it's not transparent because we are all born into a system that is already up and running and ongoing, you know, everyone is brought up to kind of view other people as having culture and we're just the way we are. And it's the same kind of for the way that our system operates. You know, we tend to view these things that are historical and social and institutionally specific as natural and normal. You know, we're born into a money system and every child knows that, you know, a dollar is this or that and all these kinds of things. So, so we don't see clearly what's at bottom of the system. introductory economics, maybe half of the students in my classes were surprised when they found out that the U.S. was not on a gold standard. I mean, what? What do you, what do you mean? You know, because they were brought up kind of watching movies like Goldfinger, James Bond, or whatever. Then what, what do you mean? Even though they didn't really understand how any gold standard worked anyway. 
people still tend to either not think about why a $20 bill is worth $20 worth of goods and services that it can exchange for, even though that piece of paper, it doesn't have an value equal to $20 worth of goods and services. They just accept it as the way it is. Or if they think about it at all, it's one of these kind of circular arguments that, well, I accept it because other people accept it and other people accept it because I accept it. What chartalism or state money theory or modern money theory has brought out or revived is this idea that at bottom, general acceptability is guaranteed by the state's acceptability of its own monopoly currency at its pay offices in payment of taxes or other payments to the state, such as fines or fees or whatever. The story that, you know, sometimes is told is let's start from kind of day one. You have a government that has the currency and then you have this population. Why would anybody in the population accept the government's fiat money in exchange for goods and services if it's not doesn't have an intrinsic value? Well, if the state taxes people and requires that the tax be paid in its own money, that creates the demand for the otherwise worthless pieces of paper and gives it a value. Currency is is issued, you know, when I was younger, it was uh, by writing a check. Now it's by changing a number in a computer. You have bank balance sheets when I pay my taxes, I go online to my checking account and I see the number in my account drop. And then in the treasury's account, the number will increase in its balance sheet. And if I get paid a social security check or some other payment from the government, then it probably makes a direct deposit into my account and I see the number in my account go up. Some of my colleagues like to say that the government is the scorekeeper. This changing of the numbers on the balance sheets is keeping score and money is the way in which we keep score. You know, when we go to, uh, you know, a football game, when Manchester United is playing against whoever and one of the teams scores, you know, seven goals, nobody says, hey, we're going to run out of numbers. You know, nobody, nobody wonders where do the scorekeepers get the numbers to keep score? You know, it's a, obviously it's ridiculous. Well, that's the same. It's the state, the government can run out of money is like the same thing. I mean, it's like saying that, you know, your math professor is going to run out of numbers or letters because they're writing up so many equations on the board. We should not confuse the unit of measurement with the thing that we're measuring. And that's what we tend to do with money. 
Money is the unit of measurement, and we confuse it with the thing it's measuring. And that's why you, you can't run out of inches. You can't run out of acres. You can run out of land, right? But you can't run out of the unit of measurement. When the U.S. government issues new money into the economy by the Treasury smelting up some new coins or the Fed printing up some new $20 notes, do we also include government debt here, which is really just like the government printing up some interest-bearing notes? Well, you have it right there. They're basically an interest-bearing alternative to cash, and it's not necessary for the government to sell bonds, to generate revenue in order to spend, just as it's not necessary to tax in order to generate revenue, in order for the federal government to spend. But taxation and bond sales have other purposes. In the case of taxation, one of them is to create the demand for the currency and give it a value. Taxes also can be used to affect behavior in other ways, to discourage certain kinds of behavior, like a, you know, a tax on smoking. Or in the case of bond sales, the purpose, one, is that if the government wants to give an interest-bearing alternative to cash, that's one purpose of issuing bonds. But another purpose, under our current institutional setup, is that if the central bank wants to maintain short-term interest rates, the interbank lending rate, which you know we call the Fed funds rate in the United States or LIBOR-type interest rates, the overnight rate, then if the government wants that rate to be above zero, then it uses bond sales to drain the excess bank reserves from the banking system that are created by the government's own deficit spending so that those excess reserves won't force that overnight interest rate down to zero. So the banks that are operating, say, on Wall Street, they have got funds sitting in their accounts that they don't have anything to do with. The interbank funds is where they lend them to other banks that maybe have a shortage of funds. What I think you're saying is, is that if all the banks have got excess cash sitting on their books, no one will really need to borrow off them. And the interest rate for short term borrowing to the banks will then just go to zero because no one wants it. If there are excess reserves in the system and there's not a demand to borrow them, right? Then banks start, they start reducing their lending rate to try to entice someone to borrow them. And this forces the rate to go all the way down to zero. I mean, you saw Japan for practically 20 years running these deficits. And you had interest rates at or near zero. You know, look, U.S. rates now are so very low. When the government spends money, lends money, or gives money into the economy, then that adds reserves to the banking system. 
And when the government borrows money, taxes money, or otherwise takes money from the economy, that decreases the reserves in the banking system. So when the government runs a deficit, its spending is greater than its taxing. And so there is a net reserve addition to the aggregate banking system. And if they don't do anything else, the overnight rate's going to go down towards zero. And so if they want to maintain a positive overnight rate, they borrow back, quote unquote, you know, they sell bonds to drain those reserves out of the system so that these excess reserves won't force the rate down to zero. The interesting thing is the so-called borrowing, you know, the selling of bonds comes after the government spends, whereas usually it's thought that government has to borrow in order to spend. But logically, the spending has to come first, and then the borrowing comes after. So the government spends money into the economy, and all that money ends up in people's bank accounts. And the excess money that's sitting around in the banks, the banks, they've got so much extra cash sitting around, they end up lending it at lower and lower rates to try and make some money out of it. And this can drive the price of money within the banking system below what the central bank wants. So if Ben Bernanke wants interest rates at 10% and suddenly the banks have got all this extra cash around and they sell it at 5%, then we have a bit of a problem. So between the Fed and the Treasury, they figure out how much extra cash is sloshing around in the banks and they offer such an amount of government bonds at a rate which will make all these extra cash take it out of the system and then give them an interest bearing government bond, which would be in around the same price as the target that the central bank wants to set. Well put. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, very circuitous thing to get your head around i know it but and listen the u.s system and every system has its own historical idiosyncrasies and so on things that are left over from the days of the gold standard things that are there not because they need to be there but because they're sort of self-imposed constraints for example the distinction between the treasury and the central bank for analytical purposes some of that distinction is almost easier to just think about one unit that functions as both the treasury and the central bank by this understanding we can see that the government can always control the interest rate of the government debt if they want but they can just get the fed to buy whatever amounts needed like they're doing under qe to keep it at a certain level Okay, so what I wanted to say before was that many of us think that the rate should be allowed to go to zero, that, quote unquote, the natural rate of interest is zero. Natural there is a little tongue in cheek, but that, that the normal rate of interest under this institutional setup is for the nominal risk-free short-term rate of interest should be zero. Why not? It would have a lot of benefits. So then the government wouldn't need to sell the bonds after a deficit spends. It would just let the rate go to zero. And all the national debt is, is a record of 
all of the times in the past that the government sold bonds to drain the excess reserves to maintain a positive short-term rate of interest. And so the national debt should be called the interest rate maintenance account. And so nobody would be worrying. We wouldn't have a clock on Times Square that with the fear, ah, you know. Now, there is a third alternative to either the government selling bonds and maintaining positive short-term rates that way or letting rates zero. And that is if the central bank pays interest on reserves, then that rate becomes the short-term rate. So in Canada, for example, that's how they do it. So it's still an interest-bearing alternative, right? Because you get interest on reserves at the central bank. The way that the system should be managed if they both knew how it worked and were willing to do it that way, not using the potential of the system to its full advantages for a variety of reasons. Some might be because they don't understand. Greenspan once said that we continue to operate our current fiat money system as if it was a gold standard. That's just unbelievable because these are two different institutional systems. They operate according to a different logic And if we were on a gold standard, then a lot of the things that the deficit hawks say about deficits and the debt and so on, that it causes high interest rates and inflation and about printing money and all these things might be relatively true, but we're not on a gold standard. So the deficit hawks forgot to change their paradigm when system changed. But to hear somebody like Greenspan continuing to operate the system as if we were on a gold standard, I mean, that is just bizarre. I mean, and same with the self-imposed constraints that government puts on itself. You know, people want to have a constitutional amendment to balance the budget in a 12-month period. Why? There's no need to do it. And and they're going to destroy one of the most successful social programs in history, the U.S. Social Security system, because they think they're going to run out of money. Well, you had this kind of debt ceiling come up, I think, maybe 20 times under Bush's administration. It's a non-non-threatening thing. Maybe 20 times under Bush's administration. It's something automatic, non-threatening thing. It's technical. (laughs) Technical. (laughs) It's a technical thing that has nothing to do. Non-threatening thing with the real economy or policy at all, Bush's administration. They're pretending it's a crisis because they have a plan. Maybe 20 non-threatening thing, 
just like uh, after 9-11, they have a plan. The Pentagon pulled out a plan. It's something automatic for Iraq's oil fields. Non-threatening thing. Maybe 20 times under Bush's administration. They're pretending it's a crisis. Wall Street has a plan to really clean up now. It's something automatic to really put the class war back in business. Just like uh, after 9-11, to really clean up now. Get rid of Medicare. They're pretending it's a crisis. Get rid of the programs for the poor, for Iraq's oil fields, and say there's no money for you. We've given it all away in the bailouts. It's something automatic, maybe 20 times under Bush's administration. We've given it all away in the bailouts. Put the class war back in business. There's no money for you. We've given it all away in the bailouts. Put the class war back in business. There's no money for you. We've given it all away in the bailouts. If we think about trying to actually pay back the government debt, it would be giving cash to people for their existing interest-bearing type of cash that we call government debt, and then taking the government debt and somehow basically just destroying that currency. So you might as well maybe perhaps just burn a few trillion dollars in notes. Would that have the same effect? Well, in fact, you know, when the government does get cash, which is less and less, but when it does get cash, it shreds it. That's what it does. Here in Kansas City, we have one of the regional Federal Reserve banks, and we meet on a tour, and at the end of the tour, they give them a little tiny sack of shredded dollars as like a little souvenir. That's what they do anyway, is shred the cash. But as far as the debt, here, let's step back for one second. Here, a point that I would like to emphasize is that we should never discuss a deficit existing somewhere in the economy without also talking about how that deficit shows up on the other side of the bookkeeping ledger as a surplus, which has to exist someplace in the economy. We should never discuss a debt existing somewhere in the system without also discussing how that debt shows up as assets on the other side of the double entry account. This is what we do. We violate that rule whenever we discuss the budget deficit or the national debt because they never talk about how the deficit must. And this goes back to the simplest proposition about an economy that one could possibly state, and that is for every buyer, there is a seller. For every debtor, there is a lender. For every deficit, there must be a 
surplus of exactly equal value, just as for every purchase, there must be a sale of exactly equal value. The question is, how does the government budget deficit show up as a surplus on the other side of the bookkeeping ledger? If we're going to reduce the deficit, we're going to be simultaneously reducing the surplus on the other side. And if we eliminate the deficit, we're going to be eliminating that surplus. And if we are going to say the the government should run a surplus, then a deficit is going to have to appear on the other side of the T account. And we should be aware of exactly who's getting affected on the other side. If we say that we're going to pay down the national debt and the government could pay down the national debt. The, the question is, why should it? You know, is there any economic reason why it should? If we are going to reduce the size of the national debt, we are also going to be reducing the national wealth or the national assets that are simply all of the bonds that are being held by people out there. and. You know, how does the government deficit appear on the other side of the bookkeeping ledger? Well, this gets to the financial balances. If the trade balance was the value of exports and the value of imports was equal, let's th- so let's throw that out for a minute, then the government deficit is a private sector surplus. If every congressman that was running for office, you know, had to say instead of, We've got to reduce the deficit. If they had to say, we've got to reduce the private sector surplus, it wouldn't sound, you know, so great. Under this type of system, our thermostat for controlling the economy is really the currency. And the only thing that stops us is the amount of real inflation or deflation. The only thing is I would not say just the currency. It's the currency, the budget. And the composition of government spending as well. See, that, that, that's what it really comes down to, right? Bernanke has said, of course, we can't run out of money. You know, of course, we can't. A sovereign government cannot default except voluntarily. This is the problem that the, you know, Eurozone countries got in because they gave up their monetary sovereignty. But for a monetary sovereign, you can't go broke. But what, you know, some people might say is, well, if we have hyperinflation and the value of the money becomes worth, truly worthless, not just intrinsically, right, then that in a sense would be how they think of going broke. We have to be able to control the value of the currency. That doesn't mean that any amount of inflation is the worst thing that could possibly happen. It means, you know, we have to maintain a stable value for the currency. We've gotten kind of spoiled with such low amounts of inflation. Deflation would be much worse than some inflation. There would be no problem 
with somewhat higher levels of inflation would not be the end all the way that the inflation hawks trying to scare, oh, we're going to become Zimbabwe, you know, if inflation is 4% or something. So, yes, I would say the management of the currency along with the government budget and the composition of government spending are the primary macroeconomic pools for a prosperous and stable economy. Thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Forstadter. Th- thanks very much for having me. I blow through here and the music goes down and round. Ho, 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 ho. And comes on here. Press the first valve down, and the music goes down and round. Oh, 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 and comes on here. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, Lee Dorsey working in the coal mine, and the track Color Line by Asian Dub Foundation. You also heard Dr. Michael Hudson trancing the light fandango with the aid, of course, of Sun Ra and the dance of the Cosmo Aliens. You are now listening to Louis Prima explaining to us exactly how it is that the music goes round and round. listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. I press the middle valve down and the music goes down and round below, below, below. Oh ho ho, listen to the jazz come out. <laughs>